Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Changes with me Annie Mack. This is the place that we talk all things change. Hope you're doing good. There's change afoot. We're able to go to the pub soon. We're able to go to restaurants soon. The new normal is kind of on the horizon. Sending love to all the parents who have pretty much given up on homeschooling. I stand in solidarity with you. Uh the sun is out. Let the kids play. That's what I say. Hope you're doing okay. I'm delighted to say that on this week's podcast, um we are going to be speaking to author and journalist John Ronson. So John Ronson is an award-winning writer and documentary maker and the author of many best-selling books including So You've Been Publicly Shamed, uh Them Adventures with Extremists and The Psychopath Test. You can do what I did and just buy it. You can buy like a bundle where you get like all of the books he's ever written in one big um nice package. Um he's done screenwriting. He's uh he's also been become really successful and critically acclaimed for his podcast recently in 2017. He released The Butterfly Effect, which is a seven episode podcast on how free internet porn changed the adult film industry. And then his follow-up to that, The Last Days of August, was about the death of a porn star called August Ames, who was Twitter shamed for an allegedly homophobic tweet. So that was kind of when all of his previous themes intersected uh and so porn so twitter shaming all of that and it it just kind of made sense for him i guess to do this um last days of august series and it was so compelling such a brilliant listen i kind of started listening to it and just got lost in it for about 2 days until i finished it i binge listened to a podcast my first ever binge listen actually that was I've been wanting to speak to him since then actually and uh, having much enjoyed his books and having the feeling that those things that he's written about in the past have never felt more at the forefront of what's going on in our society. So I thought it would be a nice time to speak to him. We recorded this chat pre-lockdown. He was in New York where he lives and uh, we had a lovely time. This is John Ronson on the Changes podcast. Okay, I'm just putting on the headphones. 1 2 3. There he is. Oh, you sound great. Yeah, you sound crystal clear to me as well. That's good. I just did an interview with a former Nazi and the sound quality was much <laughs> worse, but that's because it was complicated. He was in Texas, and it's a long story. I would expect nothing less of you, John. <laughs> okay, let's begin. Um John Ronson, we are so happy um to have time with you. Thank you so much for your time to start with. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's very nice to talk to you, Annie. Do you mind if I start at the start? Uh sure. Where were you born please? Cardiff. Cardiff. And what hospital can you remember? Uh no. I Obviously you won't remember because you were just born. <laughs> But I remember my mother pointing it out to me once. I've got a feeling it was really close to uh Sophia Gardens, which was a great concert hall in Cardiff where I saw oh my god, uh, David Essex and uh, uh Joy Division and the wow. Specials and and then uh, and the night after a Duran Duran concert it fell down in in the snow. <gasps> 
a narrowly averted massacre of Duran Duran fans. Wow. Um, and, and I've got a feeling I just link Sophia Gardens with the hospital that I was born in. So I think they were really close to each other. Who, were, who was John Ronson at school? What were you like at school? Oh, I was a um, very uncomfortable in my skin, very socially awkward, not that happy. Mm. And then inevitably that ended up with me getting kind of bullied when I was about between about the ages of about 15 and 18, I'd say. I mean, I've I've read some of what you've spoken about with regards to that bullying, but it sounds like it was brutal. It was, yeah. I I went to, this this all happened at Cardiff High School. And yeah, it was really bad. I mean, I was pinpointed as as the the most bullyable person in my class. Uh, so it was it was not great. Yeah, I got like, thrown in lakes and blindfolded and thrown in the playground, and um, it, it wasn't good. Yeah, I was awkward and banal and and. Uncomfortable, you know. I, you know, I was, a, I was a bit, of, I was a mess back then. Mm. So, so presumably, uh, the bullies picked up on the fact that I was a mess and that factored into their decision to choose me. How do you think that has affected you over the years? Now that you obviously have the benefit of hindsight and you can look back at those years, I'd say it affected me in both positive and negative ways. So, the positive ways was that it sort of taught me. Yeah, when you're pushed to the edge of the playground and you're not in any group and you're just this person on their own standing on the edge of the playground looking in, that's kind of good training for a journalist because we are supposed to be unaligned to any groups and off on our own as sort of free spirits, I suppose. So in that way, I think being bullied is good training for, for a writer because it means you're suspicious of elites because, you know, it was the elites that threw me into Roth Park Lake. So that's, that, that was the positive thing. And it propelled me out of Cardiff and, you know, propelled me to move to London. I, if I'd ever thought I'd stay in Cardiff, being so badly picked on at Cardiff High meant there was no, no way. So, so that's another positive thing. It sort of set me on my adventures. I guess the negative thing is that it does stay with you. I still have quite a lot of social anxiety and I find it hard to go to parties and stuff. And I'm sure there's some weird connection there. Mm. That, that sort of never really... I remember when I was writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I met the governor of New Jersey and he, he had been bullied too because uh, he was gay. And it was just the two of us sitting in this cafe in... Manhattan reminiscing about being bullied as kids and agreeing that that experience follows you into new rooms. And there was like the governor of New Jersey and and me, a you know, successful writer. And we were both, I could tell, pretty sort of impacted still decades later by it. It does. Those memories follow you into new rooms when, when, and when you meet new people, you sort of feel, you have a sense of sort of inadequacy. Is there, is there a sense of mistrust? Is there a sense of knowing that, you know, the, the kind of being aware of the cruelty of people from a young age like that, of what people are capable of? No, I'm pretty trusting. It was more, 
sometimes my problem is that I'm a little bit too trusting. Like okay. I'd be in, I'd be interviewing some uh, Nazi, and then be surprised that they turn out to be like really terrible. I just remember that. Uh, <laughs> I remember um, when I lived in Islington, I was out with my next door neighbour, and I was complaining. I said, oh, "I'm making this." Um, thing about this religious cult and the leader is like being really mean to me and manipulative and my next door neighbor said why are you always surprised (laughs) (laughs) you interview like nazis and cult leaders and you're surprised when they turn out to be uh, unpleasant (laughs) Um, so so i'm trusting that honestly it's more sort of you know weird low self-esteem thing which which also you know has positive sides too because it means you don't become egotistical yeah of course yeah you, you know my success has never gone to my head in fact I wish it would go to my head a little bit more <laughs> um I'm interested because of the nature of your job now and you know where you you do this kind of rigorous research on everything that you that you decide to focus on have you ever decided to go back and research any of the people who bullied you and, and well, find out who they are now what they're doing well, I actually did it once. Um, I did it for This American Life, um, and I slightly regret it. I was invited to the school reunion. Oh, my God. Uh, and um, How many years? 20, I think okay. it was. Yeah. And I suddenly had this stupid brainwave where I thought I'd go and I'd take a radio producer with me and um, we'd, we'd confront the people who threw me in the lake. But to be honest, Annie, it was a kind of a dick move. Uh, it seemed funny in advance, but yeah, you wouldn't want to be at your 20 anniversary school reunion and have someone turn up unannounced with a radio producer. Uh, <laughs> so all the, all the former bullies were like, well, you know, <laughs> it seems like you haven't changed, John. Like, it was, it, it sort of backfired a bit. I'll tell you how it started. It started uh, with me waking up in the middle of the night and realising I was still angry with the boys who threw me into Roth Park Lake. Yeah. Yeah, in 1985. So I went online, I went onto Friends Reunited and found one of them and emailed to tell him that I'm now a best-selling author. Uh, So he emailed me back and he said that the reason why they threw me in the lake was because I was a pain in the ass and the tenor of my email led him to suspect that I haven't changed. (gasps) So so that didn't work out well at all. So I made this, I I did make this radio show about going back to my um, school reunion. And I think the first hint that it was a mistake was that This American Life put it out and they called�����������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������
bully that I, or, or, was, yeah. or were they still well, as terrifying? Well, one of them, you know, you always want to think, well, I'm going to, you know, the bullies, they're not going to have good lives. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But actually one of them is a world leading archaeologist who has his own plane. So that's great. That's not good. Great news. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the reunion itself was kind of bad, but yeah. recently I, I went back to Cardiff and gave a talk at St. David's Hall, which is where, when I was a kid, I went to see Dexy's Midnight Runners, and this yeah. was a big concert hall, and and I gave a talk there, and at the, at the very end, the very last person at the, at the end of the signing was this sweet-looking man, and it turned out to be a kid who I knew at school and I would call Will Davis and I'd go to his house at lunch times and we'd listen to Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits wow. and um and in fact going to Will's house at lunchtime and listening to Swordfish Trombones was another little indicator that there was a world beyond this world mm. that I could somehow maybe access. So me seeing Bill and this is only like a year or two ago was was so nice. You don't want to think of your whole childhood is basically just one big bullying experience. Of course not. It changed quite extremely for you after that once you got out of Cardiff, right? Yeah, like the day I moved to London, my mother dropped me off at the Polytechnic of Central London when I was 18 and my life just instantly became great. Straight how, away. how so? Well, I, I met, there was a guy, the guy in the room next door to me at the Hall of Residence, a guy called Dippin' Joshi, said, uh, let's let's go out, let's hit the town. And so we hit the town and just my life was just really good. I, I just relinquished all the baggage of Cardiff. I, I'd been overweight and I very quickly lost all the weight. So um, I was looking good and just, and I was in central London and living in squats and occupying the student union building in, in uh, a protest against student loans and uh, the buzzcocks turned up and did an impromptu show for us. Uh, just living in the middle of London and suddenly yeah. being popular. And, and do you think, I think part of the reason why I changed so um, extremely and so quickly was because you just weren't in Cardiff, you weren't in your family home, you weren't, you know, just, it's the situational. Yeah, I could kind of reinvent myself. Yeah, I get uh, it. yeah. I remember there was a boy in in the year above me at college called Trevor who tried to pick on me, mm. and it was so. I, I just remember thinking, no, no way. Like I've just been through three years of that. Like yeah. no way am I going to let that happen again. So I told him, you know, to go fuck himself, and and actually, and everything was fine. Yeah. You talk, you talk openly, and and you know you mentioned it there about your social anxiety, and I'm I remember your TED talk as well when you, uh, when you talked about the psychopath test and you listed the twelve. I hate saying the word disorder with. because it feels like it's you know it's it's not a disorder; it's just part of what your brain or whatever. But it's yeah. like, do you feel like? Um, and I promise we're going to stop talking about your past very soon. Do you feel like that those those three years have have informed the some of those like the social anxiety and the things that you have yeah they they really have and it's such a shame i, I wish yeah. it wasn't a factor in my life um uh, it comes and goes uh but but sometimes it does come i mean this is terrible but i'm you know i'm, I'm a sort of open book so i might as well tell you but um not long ago like about a month ago uh, I was, we've got, we bought this little house in upstate New York, which is why I'm talking to you from now. 
and I was invited to a party and I just couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to go to it. And it was to do with that, you know, there's still stuff bubbling around in there. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it is to do with those three years. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. Do you think that those experiences have informed your career path in any way? Yeah, I think so. Um, as I said before, being mistrustful of powerful people and uh, is, is a really good thing for a nonfiction writer yeah. to feel. And I think that came from that. So good things came from it too. Mm. Being interested in why people behave cruelly towards other people I'm trying to sort of humanise it, I suppose. Yeah, I always think you're so forgiving when it comes to that as well. You're always very keen and, uh, uh, to look at the, uh, uh, to not put someone in a corner of being a, 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 you know, binary bad person. Yeah, I'm, I think that probably comes from it too. It's trying to understand people rather than just demonise them. I'd much rather try and understand why people behave poorly towards other people than just think they're monsters and not think and you know not think about them again mm. is there anyone you don't understand in that you've investigated and you just can't you can't get to the bottom of their choices actually i'm doing a story now which i can't tell you what it is so is this is going to be a bad story but <laughs> yeah i'm i'm doing a story now for audible about a woman who i briefly tried to investigate 20 years ago and it was a big failure and she behaved in really interesting complicated ways that i'm trying to figure out now yeah. um but i can't tell you anymore i'm Fair. I'm, I'm intrigued that's right. enough <laughs> Now, another change, John, that wasn't quite as immediate, but definitely kind of affected how your career was shaped moving forwards, was just the idea of you being a clairvoyant and being able to grab and hold on to these very, very timely um, theories and cultural trends and, and, and zoom in on them. There's been maybe three times in my life, I'd say, where I cottoned onto something before anybody else did. Mm -hmm. One was about the rise of conspiratorial thinking. And then the second time was with the psychopath test, where both an interest in psychopaths ruling the world, but also a critical look at mental health labeling mm -hmm. and whether there's a sort of tyranny to labeling other people from afar as psychopaths or whatever maybe that turns you a little bit psychopathic again I, ha I was having all those thoughts before they became popular and mainstream so yeah. again that book came out at just the right time and then the third time was I think I realized about the malevolent power of social media shaming and how it was a new form of forcing conformity onto people like, why do we tear people apart on Twitter? What What's going on there psychologically? And again, like when I started writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, everyone just thought social media shaming was cool. It was like new and cool. <laughs> and uh, 
so I was the first person to come along and say, well, me and Monica Lewinsky, actually, simultaneously, were the first two people to come along and say, I think we should be looking at social media shaming in a different way. And talking about social media, do you mind sharing with us, because we were kind of brought on your journey in social media, you coming on and off Twitter, and, and there's there's two times that you talk about in the book where you are kind of... Um, well, the first time is the bots, uh, and then the second time is the guy who pretends to be you. <laughs> and oh, yeah. it's just like the the adventures you've been on on Twitter alone. Uh, it's a real roller coaster. Yeah. Well, this that the the so I went onto Twitter one day and noticed that there was another John Ronson on Twitter. It was John underscore Ronson, but its avatar, its picture was my picture, and it was tweeting things like going home, got to get the recipe for a plate of lemongrass and mussels, hashtag yummy. <laughs> so I <laughs> tweeted, who are you? Who is this mysterious lemongrass loving me? Yeah. And then, and, then the next, and then it tweeted, watching Seinfeld, can't wait to have I don't know, some kebab or something. It's kind of weirdly even more malevolent, isn't it? When when it's so when it's so you know it's not even it's just a different version of you. That yeah. it's so weird, it's so uh, yeah. weird. Well, then the next morning I woke up and checked the other John Ronson's Twitter feed before I checked my own, <laughs> and, uh, and it, it tweeted as I slept. It, it tweeted, "I am dreaming about time and cock." Okay. Okay. So I thought, and then I looked at its follower list and it had like 50 followers, but some were people that I knew from real life. Oh God. Yeah. Who were presumably wondering why I had suddenly become so interested in fusion (laughs) cooking and also passionate. And also, yeah. 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 It's sort of candid about dreaming Mm. about cock. So (laughs) I I, I tracked the, uh, the, uh, inventors of this bot down to these three academics who were connected to Warwick University. And I thought, okay, this is fine. I'll just ask them to take it down and they'll take it down. And so I said, hi, can you take down your bot, please? And they emailed back and said, we prefer the term infomorph. And I immediately felt a sort of tightening in my chest. And I said, uh, well, can you take it down anyway? It's pretending to be me. And they replied, the infomorph is not pretending to be you. It is repurposing social media data into an infomorphic aesthetic. So I just I just went to war oh. with this robot version of myself. Wow. And eventually I met them and they were just, you know, like they were so supercilious. They kept on saying things to me like the internet is not the real world. They had no conception. I said, this is identity theft. And they were like tutting and rolling their eyes about how naive I was. Uh, so then I, I, I interviewed them on video and I put the video out on YouTube. And I was a bit worried because I'd been so screechy. When I get annoyed, I get very screechy. And it's yeah. quite unpleasant to listen to. And so I thought all the YouTube comments are going to be mocking my screechiness. But no, all the YouTube comments were on my side. It was like, who are these terrible academics? And I was like, so pleased. I felt like Braveheart. (laughs) Um, But then the the messages were getting like darker and darker. 
uh, as she went down the list, it was like, you know, it was only like four message, four um, comments down where people were saying, we, let's gas these cunts. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what gave me the idea to, to write the book about social media. Shape. Well, that was one of the ideas. Yeah. So you actually, you, you actually saw and, and kind of created in your own way, not, not meaning to, but an actual public shaming um, yes. off the back of these guys. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then around the same time I moved to New York, this was about 2012. And because of my social anxiety, I, I found myself sort of isolating a bit in New York and not going to parties and spending too much time on my own and sort of not, you know, not being happy. I was homesick. I missed London. Mm. And I felt like I was floundering in New York. And then when I would see people getting publicly shamed on Twitter, so for instance, probably the most famous story from, from that book is this PR woman from New York, yeah, Justine Sacco, who got on a plane to Cape Town. And just before she got on the plane, she tweeted, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. And then got on the plane and turned off her phone and fell asleep. And while she was asleep, she became the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. And um, partly because I thought, like everybody was just so thrilled that there was this woman asleep on a plane and we were destroying her and she had no idea that she was being destroyed. And people thought that was hilarious. They were tweeting, mm. we're about to watch this Justine Sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows she's being fired. And I thought, and as I watched this unfold, I mean, at first I thought what everybody else thought that night, which was, you know, great, somebody's fucked. Mm. And, uh, and then I had two thoughts. The first was, as a fan of Randy Newman and South Park, I kind of recognized her tweet as not as racism, but as a badly worded joke that was yeah. mocking her own privilege. Mm. She was making fun of herself, her own like mm. bubble of ignorance. So it was a self-reflexive joke about herself. And nobody else seemed to get that that night. Everybody was just so. Well, they were. About they weren't even there. trying to get it right. I think that's that's the common thing. Is it kind of you 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 find a way for the rage to kind of work for you, and you you don't ever try and look for nuance. Right, willful ignorance, yeah. and also the flame was burning so hot that night that if anybody yeah. did tweet, I'm not sure that Justin Sacco's deserves what's happening to her. People just piled in on that person too. Yeah. And I remember there was Helen Lewis, a journalist from the New Statesman. She was like one of the only people that night to tweet, I'm not sure that this is deserved. And people piled in on her and she went silent. And I thought, journalists, we're supposed to speak truth to power. We're supposed to be unafraid of, of powerful people behaving appallingly. And yet the night of the Justin Sacco incident, everyone was scared. And because I was sort of flailing a little bit in New York myself, I found myself empathising more with her than with the people who were tearing her apart. And so th that was the other reason why I wanted to write that book. Um, let's talk about The Last Days of August, which was a podcast that I really was just so uh, 
transfixed by and, and enjoyed so much and just your discoveries into this world of porn. I'm really interested in your take, having immersed yourself in this world and been exposed to so much of the inner workings of it. I'm really interested in your kind of take on on, on the kind of porn industry now in 2020 and, and how you feel it is doing. Well, I spent about three years making two podcasts, The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August, both yeah. about the porn industry. It started because I realised that Pornhub had really decimated the lives of porn people because Pornhub's a, a depository of pirated content illegally uploaded by fans. And of course, you know, it, it's watched by hundreds of millions of people. And so hundreds of millions of people are complicit in taking money away from the pockets of porn performers. You know, we barely care when it's musicians who are complaining about not having any money anymore yeah. because of piracy and streaming services and so on. So we barely care when it's musicians, but we certainly don't care when it's porn performers because yeah. we don't want to think about their lives because we need to... <laughs> Do we need to dehumanize? Desensitize it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I met this woman called Dakota who was addicted to Pornhub and I asked her if she ever learned the names of the porn performers and she said, no, it's like when you kill a deer, you don't name it because then you can't eat it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God! I know. And because I've always been really interested in hypocrisy. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it was the hypocrisy of that that really made me want to do that show. Yeah. I want to I, I name the deer. So, yeah. uh, so that's why I made The Butterfly Effect, which was a very sweet, warm podcast about like, how porn performers are trying to survive in the days of free streaming porn. And what are the consequences? What are the ripples? And I found the most amazing ripples. The most amazing one being... Uh, this new world of bespoke porn where professional porn performers will now make an entire porn film for just one person. Oh God. Yeah. 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 So interesting. Like if you've always wanted to see a porn film, but it's so weird that nobody's ever thought to make it, you can now commission porn people to make that film just for you. Wow. Wow. Uh, and what an insight into a person's inner life to, yeah to see what what porn film they commission so so that was all very sweet but then a few months after we finished making the butterfly effect to porn performer uh, august ames took her life the day after a social media or the same day as a social media pylon and i thought well i've I, i've written about social media pylons and i've spent a lot of time in the porn industry i, I should look into yeah. what happened to august and that's how the last days of august began how do you feel now about kind of the exposure of porn to a generation of, of, of young, young kids? I mean, is, is there like an average age when you're going to experience porn or something like 11 or something? It's like 11 or 12 that, yeah. that kids start watching porn. I mean, Pornhub is now sex education for children all around the world. It's how most children learn about sex is through Pornhub. And, and, and of course, you know, a lot of the videos on Pornhub are the last oh, things God. that kids learning about sex should be watching. As a mother of two boys, I'm just like, how am I going to, what am I going to, how am I going to navigate this when the time comes? Because I'm always yeah. really interested in, not you can't take stuff away, but it's like you, you have to try and, I'm tr trying to teach my, my sons about real bodies and real 
things like female orgasms, which you don't often see on Pornhub and you know, the real way of actually being able to respectfully uh, go to bed with a woman it's just or a man, obviously. It's yeah. just terrifying. What what do you know about the psychological implications of this kind well, of this new stat of eleven years old? Well, um, at the same time that Pornhub and the other streaming sites like YouPorn and so on became really big, uh, there was a, r- a massive rise in uh, erectile dysfunction among young men, eighteen to twenty four year olds, erectile dysfunction has risen by a thousand percent in 18 to 24 year olds and i think it's i think i mean if i can hazard a guess part of the reason is what you just said about women's bodies and so on like if you're looking at these perfect bodies then you you get a sort of false screwed up sense of of bodies and i think the other thing is the way that you know kids watch porn they'll have like five videos up at once and i'll watch one for 10 seconds and watch another one for 20 seconds and that is so unlike actual sex yeah that when they try and have actual sex they're just they just can't function yeah yeah how have you navigated like all of this as a parent you know having this greater insight into the world of porn well actually my, my son is very sensible. He was the first person to tell me about Pornhub. I'd never heard of Pornhub. Uh, But when he was about 12, he came home from school and said, uh, all the kids at school are talking about this thing called Pornhub. Uh, So he's the one who told me, but he realized really early that I I think that, you know, sort of violent porn and so on is just horrible. And so, so I didn't, I didn't really have to say anything to him. He figured it all out for himself very, very early. Yeah, that's wonderful. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Are you a catastrophist? Do you think that we're all fucked? I am a little concerned about Trump getting a second term. Um, Yeah, that's that. Do you think he's going to get in? I think maybe he's not going to get a second term. In May 2016, I tweeted that I thought that Trump was going to win the election and everybody said, called me I was an idiot and there was no way that Trump would win the election. So I'd, so I've got a pretty good track record of, uh, of, of getting it right. And, and I think that moderate Democrats are so terrified of a Trump second term 
it's visceral here in America. People just can't stand to have Trump in their heads. Yeah. It's so stressful. I mean, just think if Trump gets a second term, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will die on the Supreme Court. I mean, she's really old. She's not going to last another five years, which means there's going to be a greater preponderance of conservative judges on the Supreme Court, which will mean that, you know, Roe versus Wade will, will be badly affected. Mm, mm. Immigration, you know, Trump just doesn't want to stamp out illegal immigration. He wants to put massive controls on legal immigration too. Not not to mention his disregard for democratic values and the rule of law and the separation of powers and so on, all the things, checks and balances, all the things that are at the very basis of American democracy. I, I, the idea of the Trump second term is is really frightening, I think. Mm. Um, one last question before we let you go, John. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about mental health and just the, the huge revolution of 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 uh, about it. You know, the discourse now is so public and so prevalent of people talking about it and kind of revealing their 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 kind of mental health struggles and tweeting about it and you know all of it. Do you feel like it's it's going to help? people with mental health essentially this idea of it finally being out there in the open people talking about it yeah and i think it's already helped a lot mm. i was i remember this may be a false memory but i'm sure i remember my mother driving me home from school one time when i was about 10 and her pointing at a house and saying the man who lives in that house has got manic depression and I remember thinking, whoa. <laughs> and, <laughs> like a horror film or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And those days feel really long gone. And mm. so I think by and large, almost entirely, um, people's openness about mental health is extremely positive. It's humanising, which is... Um, which is another reason why I hate social media shaming so much. I mean, my, my show about August Ames yeah. shows that when somebody behaves erratically on social media, almost always there's, it's because there's some other stuff going on in their lives. that They're, they're upset about other things. They've mm. got various struggles. And so when we tear somebody to shreds on social media, define them by some badly worded tweet when we don't know anything else about them. I'm not necessarily talking about celebrities here, but mm. just, you know, reg just private individuals who we know absolutely nothing about. Um, there'll be an awful lot of other stuff going on in their lives. So the more we know about our struggles with anxiety and depression and so on, it, the, just the more holistically we get to think of other people. Yeah. It can feel shameful to be so socially awkward that you can't leave the house you feel ashamed and then when you realize that lots of other people feel the same way and depression and anxiety is very common um and also sort of rarer yeah. disorders like borderline disorder for instance is much more common than you think and and these these, these things don't make you a freak they they just it's just all part of being human the more curative it is, what's the cure for shame? The cure for shame is empathy. Mm. I think people being very open about their mental illnesses and mental disorders is, is just a very, very positive thing. 
Well, maybe I won't catastrophize everything else. And even that, that is one great thing. We might all be fucked, but at least we can talk about what's going on in our heads. Yeah, we're, we're sharing and, and it's, it, there's something really lovely about that. Yeah. People come up to me a lot. This, I've been doing this live show, not, not very often, but I've been doing this live show about making the last days of August. And I talk yeah. a little bit about how making that show gave, gave me a bit of a breakdown. I became depressed for, for the first time in my life. Uh, I was diagnosed with this thing called situational depression. And it just, it was a lot of it was to do with just the stress of having to do, having to make that show responsibly. August had, you know, she, real name is Mercedes Grabowski. She, she just lost her life. And I had found myself having to figure out what happened to her. And it was one of the biggest responsibilities of of my life. And, and, it, it the sort of pressure got too much and I ended up with this thing called situational depression. So the situation made me depressed um, and, I, and it only lasted a few weeks so, and, and then I was like fine and I've been fine ever since. But I talk about it on stage a bit and afterwards in the signings, people come up to me and talk about how useful it is and how important it is to talk openly about this stuff. And, and I think it is. I think it's a it's a it's very beneficial to talk about these things it really does help other people John I'm, I'm really really grateful for your time once again it's been so nice chatting to you and yeah just thank you so much thank you Annie Thank you so much to John Ronson. Do check out his Audible series, The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August. Also, Okja, which is on Netflix, and read his books. So you've been publicly shamed. I mean, at the moment, there is a different person being cancelled every single day. Um, It's so timely, that book, even though it was written years ago. So do go check that out. It's a really interesting insight into the whole idea of public shaming. And of course, follow him on Twitter, at John Ronson, as long as you're not an Autobot. That would be great. Um, Thanks for all your messages about the show so far. Holly BMP sent this review on Apple Podcasts. I've had so many jaw drops during the conversations I've listened to so far. Thank you for asking such crucial guests to come and speak their truths. Thank you, Holly. I'm so glad that you guys are getting something out of these podcasts, that you're feeling that they are useful and that you're learning something. I know that time is precious. And, you know, when you step out of the house to have a bit of time to yourself and in your own head, um, that choice that you make is, is really precious. And if you're like me, you want to feel like the choice that you make sometimes is useful, like you're, you're not just being entertained, but you're also you're learning something. You're kind of growing in some way by listening to it. So I'm so glad that you think that way, Holly. Next week on the podcast, something a little different. I'm not going to say any more, except you really won't want to miss it. This episode was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.